This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and I have to say that I'm really excited about this show tonight because we are wrapping up the very last segment of our deep research and study of all of the Blu-ray seasons. That's right, folks. This is season four of Enterprise on Blu-ray, and I have probably the best panel of guests that I can assemble at such short notice. No, I'm just kidding. The best panel of guests that I can assemble because of just their arcane knowledge of the Blu-rays because we have gone into depth for the last three of them previously on the last three episodes of Warp 5. And this show is going to be no different. We have done our research. We have scoured every single pixel of these and we are ready to bring these to you. So in my conference room on the NXO one, we have the content manager and co-host of Warp 5. We have Will Wynn. Will, how you doing? I'm good. I feel like it's been a long road getting to here, huh, guys? <laughs> getting from there to here. That's number one. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of those tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Mr. Ataz, our newly minted newlywed, and he has gotten from there to here, but his time is finally near. Jeffrey Harlan. Jeff, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh I'm. Uh, I got some faith of the heart that we're gonna do have a good show tonight. That's three, and that's <laughs> yeah. That's faith of the heart, not faint of heart, right? Ooh, that's good. because I'll tell you, a man who is not faint of heart when it comes to loving Trek is Doctor Trek himself, and our special guest for this show. And we probably couldn't do this particular show without him because he pretty much is featured all over season four on the special features, and that's Larry Nemechek. Hey, Larry, thanks for coming back with us. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for that. Was fun on season three. And uh, but you know, if, if, if all these sets of all these special docs, I would have to say that definitely these are the voyages. <laughs> that was good. All right, that's our show, dot, everyone. Dot, dot. That's our show, everyone. <laughs> good night. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Drop the mic, right? So before we get into um, the the good parts of the show, which is uh, all of our uh, collective experiences and watching the special features on the season four Blu-ray. Uh, Will's going to take you through a little bit of how you can find us here on the network. So, Will, um, tell our listeners uh, where they can find us and all the different venues that they can download 
Trek FM and Warp 5. Sure, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM and grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any other Trek FM network shows, please leave us a five-star rating and a review because it helps us greatly increase our visibility um, for our new listeners. So check out all those ways that you can get to us. And I'm telling you, if, if there's a way that you can download a podcast for Trek FM, we offer it to you. So you have absolutely zero excuses. And I will find you if you haven't listened to the show by the time it drops. So <laughs> I'm feeling spry tonight. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of high energy. I think it's just because the You're looking t- spry. T- wow. I feel spry. It must be my T-shirt because in I this, am I am Star Trek's number one fan. In this tiny, cramped little <laughs> NX01 briefing room, you're you're looking spry, bouncing off the walls, bumping your head in the beams. Right, because I know this ship like the back of my hand. Clunk. You know, clunk. Mm-hmm. So tonight, season four, guys, here it is, the, the final season, the final Blu-ray set. And there's, I mean, just like all the other seasons, there is a huge amount of special features. And we're going to be talking specifically about one of those, if we can get to both of them, I'd like to, but specifically one, um, and that is Before Her Time Decommissioning Enterprise, which is the four-part, not three-part, four-part 30-minute, four-part documentary. So that's two hours of a lot of reminiscing, a lot of memories, a lot of tears, a little bit of verklempness on my part. I'm probably sure your <laughs> part's too. And, uh, but, you know, as we've done through the various studies of the Blu-rays, you know, there's a little bit of a technical download that we would like to um, relay to you. So, uh, Will, um, there's an article from Blu-ray.com that broke down the series, and... They said here that season four basically materializes onto Blu-ray with the highest quality 1080p transfer that's easily the best the series has looked on this format on Blu-ray. Would you agree with that? I agree. I think you can tell visually from especially the last two seasons that they were shooting with a with a higher definition camera. I think Brandon said he didn't like it, but I think it looks great. There's a there's a kinetic, there's a frenetic energy that you could see from the from the um, camera angles from where they're shooting. Just everything. There's there's an energy that's coming from the cinematography, and the colors are so vibrant. The uniforms are, are, are different by the time it comes here. The uniforms are a bit brighter than they were in first season. Everything just pops. The color pops. And, of course, it looks fantastic when you see In a Mirror Darkly, and you see those TOS sets, and then you see the colors really pop. It just, it just wows you, and I think this is visually the best-looking set of them all. And it's just, arguably, I think it's the best track even... Uh, better than the JJ track in terms of how it looks visually, just visually aesthetic wise. I think it just it just looks very polished. Now, Larry, you've had a chance to spend a lot of time probably on set here and there. And was it a challenge for them to always have to make sure the quality was high definition camera ready because it picks up everything? I mean, it picks up every pore, every seam, every wrinkle in the makeup, every what is hidden, what isn't yeah. hidden. You can't really kind of dust these things underneath the rug anymore, you know? Well, this was, this, just hearing Will talk about that just reminded me of a whole thing. Because when, when the show started, I mean, UPN had started with Voyager, so 94. This, this premiered in 2001. And the HD cameras were coming in and things going digital was kind of a transition. <clears throat> the big thing with season four was, and if you watch the end credits, I, I remember this, and I even had a couple of the caps that I had in my Trekline trunk uh, that, I got, that I got out to new homes, but the last season, Sony had a whole – the Alta 
Alta Vista camera, I want to say. There's a credit for Sony all the way through Fourth Season in the end titles for their camera system because Fourth Season, they went totally digital, which was a total first. I mean, to the point where, you know, like there was no huge big camera stand. It was just a little camera. They had flat screen. I mean, this sounds typical now, but this was a huge thing. The first time I walked on a Season 4 set to visit, it just threw me because like the bulk was gone. The, the the little you know director's table nearby was just a couple of little flat screens. It was not you know big infrastructure sitting. I mean the sound cart was the biggest thing now, and there was no big little you know uh, monument of chairs and and stuff that you'd normally have pla- monitors having to sit in because you weren't using the big monitor. It was just so tiny, and it, and it hit me that there wouldn't be a stack of VHS tapes anymore. In the writers' mailboxes, it would—they're just—you know—they probably wouldn't even DVDs. They're probably just emailing the dailies around to everybody to watch. You know, now they, which they probably enjoyed because they could probably have a better control over things leaking out. But it really went 100% digital the last season, and I hadn't even really stopped to think about it until you were mentioning all that. That's probably why they looked better these last couple of years because they were gradually getting there to the point to where. Uh, they were, and they it's so much so that things were so experimental that I remember walking. I specifically remember it was the it was Borderland and the the, the three part ones when when Brent was on as Doctor Sung, and walking around. And they were doing shows in the ship sets, like uh, the mess hall and the briefing room, and they didn't even have to. I mean, between flat screen TVs and the HD, they had got to where they could just have. And it was kind of funny because Mike kind of gigged me at the time and said, "Don't tell anybody this." Because it was kind of like a, we, we crossed over the guild lines kind of a thing. But it basically got to where they didn't even have to like mat in. The, it was funny because in Next Gen, they would always have to have the ship at rest or at impulse because it would be X, X thousand dollars to have warp stars, you know, going out the briefing room, the observation lounge windows. So they would always like they would have a, a captain's log of we have come to a stop while we assess. And then we'd have a meeting in the briefing room instead of having to put warp stars unless it was a real big story point. But that seemed like Middle Ages, you know, Stone Ages, because now by the time of Enterprise and things just being digital in general, if they had one of those little oval windows, they could put a plasma screen beyond that and just put a star. You know, if it was going forward, they would just have it lined up the right way and have the the warp stars going by and they could be at warp because they were just running a loop on a plasma screen outside a window. No visual effects, no blue screen, no extra thousand. It's just sitting there. And I remember walking by the first time I saw that and went, oh, well, that's cool. You're able to do that. And Mike is like, yes, but please don't mention that. <laughs> it was like, Art, that's, that's supposed to be visual effects. It's not supposed to be art department, and we're not supposed to be doing it, but we're saving thousands of dollars to so don't tell anybody. So the guilds don't yell at us or something. I mean, it was kind of a thing like that. And, and I was like, oh, okay. But that, it, you know, it was like, it, it's like frog in the pot, only for the good thing. It was like the changes that were happening were amazing. And, but that contrast to the first couple of years, there was a huge scandal the first year I don't know if you guys talked about it the first season. Mm. There was this circular firing squad blame game because all the early episodes were like muddy and dark. And and they were – everybody after the first few shows came out and people were griping and fans and audience were griping about it. And they got – they were – you know, the show was saying we're doing the same thing we've always shot at and they were – like like uh, Marvin Rush and the camera people were yelling that it was the network and the network transmission people and or it was the lab because they were still doing film and the, you know they were yelling that that Bob Blackman's costumes were too dark and there was just this everybody was pointing figures at everybody else and people would keep trying to do different things and it wouldn't get better and then they kind of more and more 
decided to yell at UPN and you guys have a cheesy little second-rate transmission system and your tech specs aren't up to it and all that. But the first year or so of, of Enterprise was – I just remember that was kind of a subtext thing. And I think a lot of fans would always go, why is the damn show so dark? Um, and maybe with the HDs, it's been cleaned up now to where that's not such an issue. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it until all this – we just got talking about this. But now I want to go back and watch the first season. Um, I wish I still had my VHS tapes <laughs> of the first year to go back and look at how it actually broadcast out versus what the HDs look like. First, I mean, the uh, yeah, the HDs even much less what the DVD blue what the Blu-rays look like now. But that was very much a thing. So you talk about an arc <laughs> from the the original muddy to the oh my god, this is so beautifully sharp. You know, I mean- fourth season that was a long path. For our younger listeners, VHS is a magnetic tape that we used to use for our recording devices to record television shows back in the day. So, just that's that's a little bit of um hasn't bit of, been that quite. <laughs> <not long. laughs> it was my lifeline when I was growing up in Germany. All right, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, I know. People have uh, they recorded it and they send it to their family yeah. and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and especially on armed services. Um, but Jeff, you know. Talking about the quality. That of the when show. we had to buy the soundtracks on eight track yeah. in seventy eights. Now that was an amazing time. Everyone, the, the collective creak on our bones. That's what you hear over over the mic. Ka-chunk, so, ka-chunk. Ka-chunk. No. so, uh, so Jeff, when you, I mean, when you saw, you're a big fan of TOS. So when you saw this particular set, because this particular set looked so good, and you finally saw the recreation of the TOS set on In a Mirror Darkly one and two. I mean, there is nowhere to hide. You have to be textbook perfect even probably more perfect than the original 66 to 69 sets were so how did you feel when you saw those i was amazed at how good they looked um i was watching it and uh i think my initial reaction uh would not be appropriate for a family show um uh i was just that impressed um i i just loved it um it 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 looked just like the old show but at the same time, better. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to describe uh, that that sense that I got when I saw it. I mean, it you could tell at a glance. Obviously, that's that's exactly what it was. But uh, at, at the same time, it's you know, it just had the production values of a modern show. They didn't change anything, but they changed everything. Um, it, it's you know, just kind of hard to describe. It's almost like um, if you had any type of like visual impairment and you got a brand new either set of contacts or a brand new pair of glasses or you just kind of like wipe that thin layer of muck off your windshield. And you're like, oh, wow, it really is sunny out because, no, I felt the same way. It was especially with TOS because, you know, it's that's my favorite. And it's a lot of people's favorites. And, and when you see like recre- like relics, relics was really good up to a point. But since they were, you know, that was still shot back in the 80s and it was still at 420. And Trials and Tribulations you know, in 96. And, and that got, it got better yeah. and better. And then you mm-hmm. finally got it here in HD when they're actually broadcasting it in 720. You're like, wow. You know, you get to see all the buttons. You get to see all the jujubes. You get to see all the computer disks. You get to see all the stitching. You get to see the amazing transformation they did on Anthony Montgomery's hair. Because I thought his, I thought his, <laughs> yeah. Dude, his high top is so good. Awesome. I want, oh man. <laughs> It's Shout like fresh out, Prince lots status. of love. Yeah, lots DZ, of love Jazzy, Jeff Lincoln. status. Yeah. It's so good. Exactly. You know, I mean, he was almost, it was almost kid and play, man, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh. All right. I, I, we should not go on this digression on early <laughs> 90s music. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I remember, because they did, Herman and, and Mike and, and the art department, top to bottom, 
There were some little things they did to help it out, like it was the same conceit that when they did the models for mentioned trials and tribulations, they did the thing with K seven and the and the, the Enterprise and the Klingon that that Greg Jean they built actual new models for for trials and tribs on on DS nine and ninety six, and the conceit was that. Yes, there's extra. There's an extra layer of detail that we have to put on there because it's not 1966, and we can do it, and the audience will expect it. But when we do it, the whole point is we didn't get this close to K7 in 66. If we push the camera in here, here's the. It's like you were talking about wiping the, the the gunk off the windshield. It's like if we could have gotten this close in 67, here's how it would have looked. So that's what the conceit was, and that's the same thing they did with the bridge. On in a mirror darkly, even though it was technically the defiant bridge, it wasn't the enterprise, but we all everybody got the wink. Yep. But um, they did some things like instead of just having the static, you know, rear projected, you know, upper upper bridge, the view screen, they would introduce something and they would have like little bitty bits of motion, like if it was one of those spectrum spectrograph color bars or some lights or some uh, like star field, they'd put just a little bit of a twinkle or a little bit of a bar advance motion or something and. Normally, a camera wouldn't, you know, like, and now we're going to put a camera on the upper deck platform above communications for five minutes. No, that's not going to happen. But just those passing pans or just for a few seconds it would be up there, there would be just a little bit of motion so that on one hand it didn't glaringly con conflict with what you remember, you know, right. lovingly. But at the same time, your, your subconscious would get the idea that you weren't seeing a poster slapped up there. You know, it wasn't 1960, or it wasn't a rear projected slide up there. Mm. There was actually a little bit more technology going on. Just like we've all kind of retconned the idea that the Juju B buttons, you know, Matt <laughs> Jeffries thing, they're not just single, like that they're uh, reprogrammable. You know, there are different overlays that they mean this with this overlay, they mean this with another overlay, which is the only way it's going to make sense. So there was something, and they did some things like instead of having just the two by four ra red railings, just butt that I remember Herman talking about, like, rounding the corners on those so they were a little bit rounded instead of just a straight, you know, two-before cut. Right. The so there were a few yeah. little things they did like that around the set, but that's not like 2%, 3%. Otherwise, my whole thing was when I saw that and then I saw it on film, like watching it on plasma, it was like, yes, once and for all, this whole plywood Christmas lights, you know, cardboardy knockdown that everybody would always – thrown at the original series sets, you know, like, oh, they're so cheesy, and oh, they're so 60s and cheap, and here here we're putting it under the HD microscope, and look how, look how awesome they look. Yeah. So take that. You can do it. You can shoot this. And, you know, and, and um, Phase 2 New Voyages had been out by then, and some of the other fan films were going, and they were doing different versions of that just on a little fan film budget. And they were already looking hot that way. But this is once and for all. This is network TV, digital cameras. It's like, take that. Those original series sets look awesome. Yep. Yep. You know, even in modern technology and modern lighting and modern camera and all that. So there, you can do another show on those sets. Take that. And to, to, <laughs> to punctuate that, before we move on to the next segment, that for me was the truest Valentine of Enterprise over anything else. I mean, I just have to say that. I hope yeah. you agree with me out there in listening land because they did a great job on it and it shows and it's worth watching. So, yeah. And one so, thing that, uh, before we continue on to the next point, that ahead, I, I, I really appreciated was something that uh, Mike Okuda brought up when they were interviewing him was he was talking about the little blinking lights that they had in the background and you had just all these 
square multicolored lights and what they did on the Enterprise interface, how in the first season they had one row of the square blinking lights, second season they had two, and by the fourth right. they had three. And I never even noticed that detail until he mentioned it. Now I can't help but notice it, that they were slowly making it more and more look like the original series computer interface. It was the old adage. It's um, If they're doing the special effects job right, you won't notice it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and he did. And it... Yeah worked perfectly and i never even noticed it until he pointed yeah. it out but if they got to a fourth season or a fifth season or a sixth season eventually you would have had a matt yeah. jeffrey's solid row of rectangular mm-hmm. uh by yeah, then i would have noticed life. it yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so we have i mean the visuals were great the audio is still in the same fantastic dts 5.1 surround it's probably sounds the best that it's ever been and it's just because as the films or as the seasons went on, it's just the quality of it was recorded just substantially better over and over and over this different season. So production value aside, it's just a fantastic set. We're going to rate it later, but I'm pretty sure that you already know what our ratings are going to be. So we're going to get into probably the, the quintessential part of this show, and that is the four-part, four-half-hour It's two segment. hours long. Two hours long. You're right, Will. Two hours long of great memories, bittersweet moments, incredible insights, some shocking, some not so shocking, because I think a lot of us know what was going on by this time if you've watched all of the documentaries throughout seasons one through three on the Blu-rays. But we're talking about, I hate saying this word, decommissioning enterprise, or these words, because... It is. It's, the, it's not just the end of a series. It's the end of Star Trek. And there were... I understand, and, and Larry, we're going to get your thoughts on this. I understand how this progressed, and I think a lot of the listeners and a lot of the boomers out there understand the history of it. But when you watch these documentaries, you really get an emotional, tactile, visceral, raw sense of how much emotion was just pouring through all these people at this time. A lot of positive, a lot of negative, and I think Jolene probably a lot a lot of negative, um, when especially when it came to the end. So, um, Will, why don't you start us off uh, with part one of Decommissioning Enterprise, and it was called New Voices, and it had to deal with Manny Cotto coming in. Right, so I think that's I think that's the big crux, right? Everyone said, you know, season four had to really season three changed the game in terms of the formula, but season four was a completely new showrunner, and he brought in a completely different um, philosophy in terms of how he wanted to do the stories. And I think it's one of those really interesting things because it's such it's such a shift, and yet it's not it's such a shift, yet it's not a radical shift, right? The shift was bringing it back into the the star uh, the Star Trek mythology that the, the the continuity and in a way it should have been the first season so many times throughout that first part they kept on saying like this is what they should have done in the beginning of course hindsight is always 2020 and it's it's a it's something that isn't readily apparent if a show is first running but i think that was the key point is that manny came in season three and he and he was relatively surprised that he was given the showrunner um responsibility season four i think there was some um, concern, not concerned, but I think there was some issue with potentially Chris Black, to, you know, taking over as executive producer. But he didn't. He ended up leaving, and it was Manny Cotto who was this relatively newcomer in season three, but had a love for Star Trek, and that started to translate into 
um, season four. And of course, they had to immediately address what happened in season three, that cliffhanger right at the end, right? It leads into Stormfront, that cliffhanger, which I think is such just a wonderful Machiavellian move in terms of just making um, a cliffhanger because the network would hate it and because the network would be faced with such vehemence from the fans that they would cancel show in the middle of cliffhanger. I think it was brilliant, the fact that they mentioned that. We just threw it in there. We didn't know it was going to happen. The show was already talked about being canceled in season three, let alone continuing beyond season four. So I think it was, so they had to resolve that. And on top of that, begin kicking into these, um, almost, I think they mentioned it in the, in the documentary. They wanted to do these mini novels, these mini anthologies. And I think it really just changed the show for the better. So what do you think, Jeff? I mean, starting off with, with new voices, what did you, what really struck you in this, in this first 30 minute segment? Well, I loved uh, the choice of episodes that Manny Cotto mentioned as his favorites from the original series. He uh, mentioned that he enjoyed, uh, he really liked the mock time Doomsday Machine. He also mentioned uh, um, the uh, Who Mourns uh, for Adonis, right? Uh, yeah, Who Mourns for Adonis, and uh, he there. There was even talk about uh, Stratos and uh, from the Cloudminders, and I mean, it's just all these little references that I just love because I'm an original series fan too. You know the it's it's the little things like that that really, uh, you know, they, that's what I enjoy he- seeing and hearing. I mean, uh, he was really excited about Colonel Green. Mm-hmm. He dropped Colonel Green's name a lot, you know, through this. And um, Manny is, I mean, he, here's the one thing that that I find really interesting. And, and, and Larry, I would like to get your thoughts on this. Manny is a true fan of the original series. And... Very seldomly, especially even today, you don't really see a lot of people that are true fans of the original series coming into work on Star Trek. You have people that know Star Trek. You have people that are really good writers and really good directors and really good creatives. But, you know, you can really tell when somebody who knows the material becomes influential on really good Star Trek writing and Star Trek producing because they know the material. They know how to bring that through line into the series and it's almost too bad that we got Manny a little too little too late don't you think well this is this could be a whole book um <laughs> called Kodo Trek what if Kodo Trek well I mean it's no the whole if you go back and look at modern start with the beginning of next gen when you go to the point where not just writers I mean Star Trek became a thing thanks to next generation and thanks to the geek revolution where it was okay to come out of the closet and embrace all your sci-fi-ness, including Star Trek. There's just a spectrum going from reassembling the people to start doing Encounter and Farpoint at, in 87 all the way to the end of Enterprise. That's 18 years. And along the way, at the beginning, you would have crew people. Uh, like, no one could be... It's amazing that Mike and Rick, Mike uh, Okuda and Rick Sternbach ever got hired on as tech advisors and started advising people on the side about Trek stuff, and it, which is what the tech manual grew into. Um, you know, we went from their mo- their memos on the show into doing a book. But apart from them, it's like if you let it be known to the production office beyond like Gene and then like Richard uh, Arnold and Susan Sackett working with him. But outside of like Gene's office staff, <laughs> if you let it be known that you were a fan and you were just a random crew person, if anything was ever turned up missing or stolen or whatever, then you were on the immediate, like, suspect list. It was like the first few years of Next Gen were really 
you if you were a fan, you just kept it to yourself. And that was just the lowly crew people, you know, like especially PAs and assistants and all that, much less kind of in the crew somewhere because they were just paranoid about stuff because people were – stuff would get stolen. But it would be people randomly just getting onto the sets or it would be stuff – scripts and things would go out to the vendors off lot and those were like a sieve. No, nobody ever thought of those people. Much less than people with the key, like you, like you, you said, the norm, people with the keys that had the power to do things, writers and designers and that kind of thing. Now that's where Mike and Rick come in very famously and started putting the in jokes and the acutograms and not just in jokes but cool things, right? And gradually that didn't really happen with the after David and Dorothy left at the beginning of next gen. Most of the writers that came in weren't really uh, fan fans. Kind of fans. I mean, Michael was kind of Michael Pill was kind of a fan. Ira was an old fan, but when they bought little boy, little boy Ron Moore sold his script in third season. He was, you know, died in the wool. I will talk titles and quotes with you all day long. Fan, right? And and then you kind of got Ron, and then Renee Ashvaria was the same way. Narain Shankar, not Brannon, but that first the coterie of the guys that were running Next Gen under Jerry and Michael toward the end, who were not old. Star Trek fans, they're professional writers. But the 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 wave was starting to come up where people were getting old enough they could both be fans and, you know, learning writers. But all through that, then you get into the Brian Fuller, you know, then you get to Voyager and DS9 and some of the new ones coming on by then. And Ken Biller was kind of a kind of a fan too, but not quite as crazy as some of the rest of them. And then Mike Sussman coming in, and then of course Andre there too. But that my base, my point is that as the years went by, the needle got bigger and bigger, and it was okay to be out of the closet, and it was finally seen as a benefit, you know, instead of God forbid, you know, like a detraction. That okay, well, so you're a big Star Trek fan, but we need you to write to really write, <laughs> you know, like don't put fans or the terms fanboy and fan service didn't exist, but that's what was floating in the atmosphere. So yeah, so by the time what's hysterical is by the time. You get to Enterprise where the whole show is about leading into the original series and you've got, you know, Ron is not involved, which I've talked about before, was a great disappointment to hear because I knew that Mike and uh, 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 Brandon and Rick's hearts were not with the original series. They knew it existed and they respected it. But I think Rick one time said that or maybe this is not fair or somebody or maybe he thought it was a compliment, said something uh or maybe it was Manny said, you know, it struck him like uh, he says basically the way he talks about it, it's kind of like James Bond in space or something. But, uh, you know, the adventure and the girls and the daring do, but but whatever, because of the time it was made also. But you finally had more and more of that coming in. And the whole point of Manny being there, Chris Black, some of the other ones could have done the same thing. I always felt bad about Enterprise's evolution because a lot of people, not just the writers, wanted – they totally got it what they thought it should be, which is what the fans thought it should be, which is here's what Kirk's world was like 100 years early, and here's how we get from Zephyrin Cochran to Kirk, right? Mm -hmm. And the Federation and all of that, and maybe even the Romulan War at the beginning and all that. And that kind of – it was almost like that kind of spun around like a – I don't know, like a like a car stuck in reverse and the, and the steering wheel cocked to the side or something. And and it wasn't until all the craziness happened with the ratings and all the evolution of the show happened and the situation came up to where Manny came in and, and then we took over that finally, 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 apart from maybe arguing that's, that's what Ira was doing on DS9, but they were dealing with what they had to deal with at the time. Like Ira and that crew 
we're doing DS9 and telling the big arc of Dominion War and and going through that and trying to service all the characters, all their 40 running characters. But at the same time, they would throw in a mention of an Andorian ambassador or a Tellarite ambassador or, you know, Tholian Silk or whatever. And they would put that original series stuff in there for fun. And fans would perk up to that. And of course I mean, they, they would. would. Of course yeah. they would. But thinking you know? that no, thinking at the time, oh, there's no way we're ever going to get to show a Gorn or a Tholian because it's beyond our effects budget. And somebody will go, oh, will you stop with the original series fan service or, or whatever, you know, fanboy stuff. So that by the time... You were to this point. I mean, I was shocked when they said they were going to do the Andorians because Rick's original take on the Andorians was, you know, the Bolians are what the Andorians were after they said, no way, we're not going to have antennaed, blue-skinned, bug-eyed monster things in, in Star Trek. That's what Rick's edict was. So early. Mr. Mott was Imperial Guard. Right, no exactly, exactly. <laughs> just put a wig on him and you can see. So, I mean, but that, so the fact that they were going to have Andorians come in, I was just like shocked when I heard that. I mean, I was thrilled but shocked, and I just knew something would happen. When I heard they were going to be the radio control antennas, I was like, fine, that will botch. It'll look horrible. It'll be a pain. It won't work totally right. It'll look horrible on camera. They'll have to simplify it. And then somebody will say, see, this is why we don't do Andorians. Because it would all be about the RC. I mean, I just knew that was going to happen, right. and it didn't. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe something actually like went right for once. But the bottom line is, like, Manny coming in was the guy who was standing there at the right time in the right place. Um, it, it, I was hoping, like, Chris had been trying to do the same thing. Mike, I mean, uh, yeah, Mike and Phyllis. A lot of the uh, – Andre, a lot of the writers in Enterprise, if they could have been unrestrained. And, our, you know, you had Mike – Akuda on the and, and Doug Drexler on the art staff and you had uh, Mike Westmore and Herman and all the people in the design and all the Dan Curry and all the visual effects people they were all rip raring to go whatever they they designed the Terra Nova what was the ship in Terra Nova was it Terra Nova they designed a ship that was very DY one hundred ish looking three Y one hundred ish looking the Conestoga thank you and and I remember them designing that way and then visual effects going well it looks like a pencil just do a saucer into cells I mean that was the and anytime anybody creatively would either from their gut or going to research like anybody professional would do to do those nods of a lead in it would get either accidentally or on purpose, kind of whittled down. Did that come from the network, or did that come from that Rick came or Manny? That uh, came from the Cooper building. Mm. <laughs> so the fact that it got to the point where the show was on life support, and they were like, uh, no, you guys step back and let somebody else run it the last year, and that's the only way we'll agree to this last year. And then Manny almost apologized, and then getting getting the space Nazis... Surely they get into this on the on the thing. I'm trying to remember if they do now. I just know it. When they 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 were originally going to do six shows and they got it down to two because he's like, this is going to be the last year. We've only got 20 slots, and and I remember him almost apologizing to me at one point. The big interview we did at the end of the year and him saying, hey, what I have done, you know, if anybody thinks, why does every single episode or every single little mini arc have a almost all have a, uh, a original series lead in? Would we have done that if we'd been in better shape? No, but it's like I looked at it as if. I've only got 20 more hours before Star Trek is off the air forever for a long, long, long time. And we've got things that have never been told, and we've got a few things that we should tweak and adjust and maybe fix, like the Vulcan arc, and make it be an arc and not just this thing we went down this path. Oh, no, we meant all along to bring it back around this way. So Actually, I think that's, that's, the, perfect, that's the perfect segment into the second part of the documentary because 
Um, because Manny actually goes into, I have my one shot. I'm going to take my one shot and I'm going to do it the way you asked me to be the showrunner. You know, I'm, I, I gladly came in in season three to help iron out a couple things. But then, you know, the off season, Brandon calls me up. And he says, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. It's just not in my heart. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You're showrunner. And I'm pretty sure when he said that, Manny said, okay, I'm going to reach into my deep bag of hindsight and I'm going to do the show that I want to do. So, so Will, when you watched the second part, Memorable Voyages, it was a segment about pretty much how they wanted to do, how Manny wanted to do the series from, if he actually had the chance to run it from season one. The, and I know how much you love the fourth season. I think a lot of us TOS fans love, the, no, you actually, Will hates the four seasons. I hate season. Star Trek. Well, I'm even on this show, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, in, um, but in Memorable Voyages, there had to have been something there, one of the stories or anecdotes. It's true. You know, what was your favorite anecdote in, the, in that sequence? Um, before I get into that, actually, Norm, I just want to say, Larry, you look really good in HD, I must say, <laughs> because you're front and center in this in this segment, right? You're you're the you're the first oh, person talking, right? Yeah. right? And in that same little auditorium with the little brown green seats, you look you right? look really yeah. good in 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 1080p, I must say. So, um, with, with that said, <laughs> I think my favorite anecdote is you know like like you said, Norm, is that the, he was really going for broke and how prescient he was. I mean, it was almost prophetic in terms of you know he thought that this was not just the end of Enterprise. This was the this was the end of Star Trek for the foreseeable future. And that's true to this day. It's present. Like what happened in the fourth season, what they packed in there in terms of the world building was so important to everything else, to the entire mythos of Star Trek. I think that can't be understated. And it's I, I don't want to take anything away from from that, but because Manny was but Everybody starting fourth season, it was like 80%, 90% knowing that it, that was it. Right. I know they didn't want to tell the fans that, but that's that's was the writing on the wall. Because the fourth season was the totally back from the dead year. There are so many things about – let me just say one real quick more thing about Manny, about coming in and that decision to make him showrunner that I don't think is on here anywhere, but it struck me. There are so many things in hindsight and the more the years have gone by that, that Enterprise so much – reminds me of the original series almost like the circles come full circle one of them is the borrowed time years like it should have been canceled but they borrowed another year only instead of three instead of two they wound up with four instead of three um and the way that that like dvd time shifting and people you know uh, remote recording at the time was kind of overlooked and made fun of and now it's very much a part of a factors into ratings and back in the early days demographics would have made Trek like uh, Brandon says on the writers reunion today's numbers alone would have made Enterprise a huge hit but the other thing that struck me as years I remember when when Manny came in he was kind of the mystery like writer that came in mid-season and there was a real good you can see the way they laugh and pal around on the writers side they they were all pretty good friends there and I just remember Manny was this like mysterious guy and he had his own assistant and I just was gonna like walk by and say hi to him and his door was always shut, and it was really hard to get to him. And I was like, wow, is, is this going to be like the guy that's hard to get to? And and I hope he's around long enough because I really am trying to get to everybody the more the years have gone by and the more people have been more comfortable with me being around, and I had the access. And I finally remember talking to his assistant toward the end of the year, and I said, hi, I'm Larry, and and I'd really like to sit down and talk to Manny about the season 
but um, I hope you, do we think he'd be up for that? And she said, oh, totally, totally. He'd love to. He'd love to. He just wants to get through the year first. And I said, oh, okay, that's that's great. That's great. And in between that and other little bits, I remember hearing, I think some of the other guys that were on the tape and some of the writers, Manny was the guy that, and this may be what ultimately led Brandon and Rick to go with him when they stepped back. Manny was the guy that would like go in his office, shut the door, and do a script in two or three days. Like, cause his first one was similitude, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody loved it. But he basically he did not. Somebody he may have said himself at some point he didn't come in and jawbone around and goof off. Not that everybody was goofing off, but he was he was the cut and dried guy that came in, shut his door, and actually worked in his office in the day all day long. <laughs> and um, and then at the end of the day, at the end of the year, he was he was great to come sit. And it really struck me as the years have gone by how that was exactly the way Gene Kuhn was on the original series. Gene Kuhn was like a writing machine, and he saved Gene's butt by coming in when Gene would get exhausted because he was the whole thing was on his shoulders. And, and he was. He was a writing machine, basically, and, and was able to crank stuff out and under pressure and just get the stuff done and have it be wonderful. And that's kind of where Manny came from. And I think you're talking about Brandon being exhausted and worn out. I think they just saw Manny as this wind him up and let him go, and the stuff he does is is pretty good stuff. And I really think it just was a wonder. I think that was his writing skill. The fact that then on top of that, he happened to be, you know, Ron Moore caliber fanboy <laughs> for Trek was just like the wonderful miraculous bonus. But I I just wonder, and I don't think that really got that wasn't an insight that I don't think is anywhere on these. Uh, but I just remember at first, I remember at a couple of the vibes from the rest of the staff, like Manny was not antisocial, but that he just kept to himself. And who was this enigma? And uh, he was, you know, perfectly good to kid around. And he's been interviewed tons of times. But um, I, I just think that's kind of what got him the job, that he was, he was, he showed that he was capable of doing, that was the work first, not the fact that he was going to do this season that all fans were just going to love, love, love for eternity. Do you think there so, was just throw that in? Do you think there was resentment, Larry, of him being a relatively new, a relative newcomer, and then having showrunner status put upon him for the fourth season? I think that was in there, yeah, in the mix of things, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it, it's difficult. I think it didn't want to dwell on it, but yeah, I think so. And but that's that's also the nature of the business. Right. Things happen. Yeah, because you had like guys like you know Andre and Mike and Chris. They were all there, one, two, three seasons, and all of a sudden. You have, but then you know, the other the, the other question though is well gee why did it have to take being backs against the wall to be canceled before you know um, oh this is just a whole can of worms but it's like it's too bad that some like I kept saying Manny was in the right place at the right time but there were a lot of people on that staff who could have you know I told the story about originally the Osarians that were in that early Zindi show mm-hmm. Mike mm-hmm. Sussman wanted to, he he was like oh why don't we make them Orions. The ones that that stole the goods from Archer from Enterprise, and then said and taunted him later on about, yes, you won't always be so, so a goody goody, and there'll come a time in here when you're faced with which they came back to, right? Made that full circle and damage, yeah. and and yeah, and he originally had said, let's have them be Orions because that fit. This is before Borderland, right? And uh, and at the time, Brandon he and he told me Brandon's reaction was really green skin. Oh, that's so sixties. That's so original series. No, so as you know, in his in the joke was he said so we made so they became Osarian so it's like what is that Irish dinosaurs but 
But that's the kind of thing that happened all the time with the visual and with the writing both, always trying to do that stuff. And it, it either would get ignored or shot down or pushed to the side or, or thought of as not important. So that same reaction you talked about, people like when they when Ira and those guys would throw it into DS9, even just mentions, much less, oh, this is supposed to be the show that's leading in the original series. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, until Manny got the keys, um, that kind of stuff really didn't happen. So back on your um, your anecdotal memory. Will. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Will. No, no worries. No, I, this is just... I merely want to say that about... I really, I really think Manny is kind of the... Uh, on top of the things people think of him for, like, oh, he got so much original series lead-ins in there. He was kind of, to me, he's also kind of the Gene Kuhn of this show that kind of came in, was a, re- was a shining light of relief and steadiness uh, for exhausted Rick and Brandon. Right. I think... I think the thing that that was also interesting about the the second feature was because the budget was so tight, they had to stretch out um, the arcs. Right, they had to do two two parters, three parters, so they can amortize the the cost of the sets over time, over uh, multiple episodes. But I think it's so interesting, and I think it's so validating the fact that what was originally a cost saving or a budget saving measure ended up creating. Uh, a venue or an avenue for even better storytelling because it's three parts. You can tell a more cinematic feel. You can tell the Augment arc. You can tell the Kirshar. You can tell the the Babel One arc. And it's so it's so fitting because they brought in uh, the Reese Stevens. They brought the novelist for Federation to tell these types of mini movies or these mini novelettes, if you will. And they could they did that because initially it was a cost saving measure. They had to stretch these budgets further right and i think it was such it was so fortuitous like you mentioned larry that so many things came in the right place for this fourth season to be what it was and one of it was the fact that they were doing these types of uh three three part arcs well again i think mike akuta said this once it's it's the same kind of thing throwback to original series where if they didn't have much money and if they'd had a ton of money the enterprise could have looked like the jupiter 2 interiors on lost in space because it was the mid-60s oh look it's a million blinking lights it must be a really advanced computer and they didn't have all that money, so instead it's this real spare uh, design that made you think, and they, they did a lot with little. And now people praise that as being, oh, it's so minimalist, and oh, it's, you know, it... it it's it, like nothing we've ever seen before. It's like nothing we've ever seen before, <laughs> but it hints at the power. It does, it's not in your face and on the nose. It's, well, that's a pretty damn powerful starship, and look how simple their bridge looks. Wow, that must be an incredibly complex and sophisticated practical design. Well, it is a bunch of Christmas lights in plywood, but the conceit and the way they sell it, you know, the way the acting and the writing uses it. But again, it's making it's making uh, it's lemonade out of lemons, and it's the same thing. It's that same same thing too. Yeah. Well, there's nothing a lot. I mean, there's nothing cooler than like you know the C57D. I mean, you know, it's it's sparse, it's sparse and powerful at the same time. So. But I mean, Jeff, you're a, you're a big fan of of the the Star Trek novels and the books and the mm-hmm. Reeve Stevens work and Federation. I know you've brought up Federation many times. And when they brought when Manny brought them in, now you're really seeing a great wealth of knowledge from the original series, and you could feel that influence. What what do you think they brought in the most that helped Manny just start to shape this entire fourth season as something that befit? A true tie-in and Valentine to the original series. Well, it's all the all the little touches that they brought in, um, like uh, you know, with the Vulcan arc things. Like they insisted on having a Salot, 
you know, they, and they knew that they could only have it for a couple of shots, and so they only wrote in a couple of shots. And then they said that the effects team then went and made like 27 shots, and then they told them to cut it back down to three, which is what they wrote. <laughs> um, they should have uh, really put but, in those additional 24 extra shots yeah. of the Sailot in the Blu-ray set because I feel that like in, might in as well. We extended features. edition. Yeah, yeah we, we need the extended edition with them being chased by Sailot for 10 minutes. <laughs> I'd watch it. I'd watch it. Uh, things like that, the uh, um, having a Lerpa for the first time since the 60s, and uh, you know all the little things like uh, like that being thrown in there uh, when they brought in uh, the mirror uh, mirror universe stuff was that they were talking about the ideas that they had uh, for doing a mirror universe story with uh, bringing in Shatner even though it fell apart uh, because of the uh, um, money issues with trying to get Chatner to come on to the show. That was just a really cool story that they had for mm-hmm. that. Uh, that would have just been amazing to see on the show, and to bring Chatner in would probably have brought in a lot of other fans who had not been watching the show for various reasons, and were like, oh, you know, they got they got Captain Kirk back on Star Trek again, I gotta go see that. Um, it, it's just a shame that that didn't work out. Um, or materialize. <laughs> <laughs> Buzzing. Was paying attention out there. <laughs> uh, especially given the uh, the, the storyline that they had, which involved the Tantalus field and transporters. <laughs> well, just the the background they were able to bring on the on the uh, Vulcan trilogy oh, and, yeah. and bring up Vulcan's Forge, which had been in yesteryear. But to to get in the point that a lot of people forget it, it's not like the Vulcans almost killed them. You know, like you talk about Namuk time and and all the original series clues about how the Vulcans always destroyed themselves with their passions. And it's not a bunch of ancient Vulcans running around on their pet cellets throwing spears at each other. The fact that when... That's a great visual, by the way. Oh, my God. (laughs) I would love to see that. (laughs) There you go. That's uh, Yeah, there's your throwback series. That's the next prequel series. Um Vulcans on sellets with spears. Just do it for uh, one episode on a DTI show. Yeah, no, to, yeah. like a very but gritty no, but, Game of Thrones esque style. <laughs> no, that's going to be the Klingon series. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, Game of Chronos. Um, oh man! All right, we can't go down this tangent. It's no, too we good. can't do that. But no, but it was instead of that image though. What you got out of the Vulcan arc was kind of a slap in the face. That well, remember, guys. <laughs> If there was a diaspora where the discontented Vulcans left and became Romulans, they had interstellar ships. So these are not ancient Vulcans running around on cellets with spears. And the fact in that show, they make the point of saying, yes, there were like nuclear exchange, there were atomic bomb exchanges on Vulcan. And that's what Vulcans, for, like uh, in the writer's uh, reunion, they talked about their melted green glass. That A, that that's such a striking visual that they, they uh, had a, atomic bomb detonations on Vulcan that they got that far. So when Spock says, we nearly wiped each other out with our passions, it wasn't like, uh, uh, what's his name, the Scottish movie? Um, Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah, it wasn't a Braveheart kind of like tribal Nordic and Scots, like, you know, angles wiping each other out. It was atomic warfare, pushing buttons, wiping each other out, and then the Romulans, what became Romulans left, because they had interstellar craft. And, but and not, that all and not gets in a taste of the, Armageddon kind of way. A real war. Yes, kind of yeah, a real war. But that yeah. all, that got solidified into canon, slapping you in the face, you know, realizing that that's what, that's where Spock comes from, that's where the modern Vulcans come from, and that's, yeah. in the immediate era, it, it's been five, six hundred years since then, but that's where, or whatever, 
Uh, somebody's going to yell at me if I'm over my timing. I haven't looked, but that's that's what they were. That's what they were coming from. But for that to all get into, uh, and then to have you know early to pal was just icing on the cake. <laughs> I just want to, yeah. I mean, that's for me. Like, um, there was a, and it wasn't in this segment, but I know that's been talked about, and it's because of royalties that they couldn't name to Paul right. to pal. Yeah, yeah. The, the, because uh, Theodore Sturgeon estate. They were going to do that, mm-hmm. and then they realized every episode they have to pay X amount of money to. But you know, doing it for a two couple of uh, a guest role on a couple episodes wasn't a big deal. Yeah, because that's for me. That's probably my favorite memory out of all of the different little tidbits. Because Tapau is, it, I mean, she's legendary. It's a mock time. It's you like know? she's all of Vulcan rolled in one package. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I said, "Oh, why not?" I mean, it, it just made so much sense. We're like, "Darn it!" Yeah. You know. But when I saw her here, it's like you know what? They're going to swing for the fences. They're going to pay what they need to pay. They're going to, you know, write that check that, uh, you know, Archer's body can't cash and or maybe Tripp's did, you know, (laughs) (laughs) too soon. No, I don't think so. So but there were a lot. I mean, that's just what we talked about, folks. I mean, we we kind of kind of get on with the show, but that's just the tip of the iceberg with this. And Mm. again, probably one of the better sequences of just going down memory lane and seeing what Manny Cota wanted to do and what the Reeve Stevens were able to bring and how that collective TOS influence and love was able to forge for this fourth season because for probably for any of the fan bases, I know that, I mean, Enterprise has a great fan base and, and they're loyal, but bringing in the TOS fan base for what they were doing was just really remarkable. And being able to bridge that between TOS and Enterprise fans was even more special because you just kept perpetuating that that history. I just want real quickly. I just want to say that I, my memory at the time. Now we were in a wholly different vibe. We're in the whole vibe like where, like I said, Doug Drexler says the new fans of Enterprise don't know that they're supposed to have hated the show, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the new generation. <laughs> no, true. Yeah. I remember at the time realizing that it was really odd because there were a whole lot. You know, the, the fandom had split during the Voyager DS Nine years. Just a lot of people. Um, it's just like the numbers, and people had their favorite, and the the unified next gen boom years. Quickly, you know, oh, no, we'll have a lot more. Well, people, all people were not watching all shows, and sometimes that was problematical for people, whatever. But I remember thinking as the Voyager numbers went down, the perception was, and Enterprise started off, there were a lot of people who had been that original, oh, it's not Kirk, Spot, McCoy, so I'm not going to watch Next Gen. There were a lot of people who had, like, gone underground when they were young adults and had their families and not kept up with Star Trek. I remember hearing and getting a vibe of a lot of original series people who had been underground and not even like paid attention to the whole next gen DS9 Voyager era were actually kind of coming out of the woodwork and curious about Enterprise. It was like, but I mean, it was too little too late and the numbers were still small and it was like they had an uphill after the first year or two, they had an uphill battle. But I remember hearing from a lot of people who were watching Enterprise then, weekly, first run who had kind of ignored modern Star Trek, but they were intrigued because it was supposed to be a lead into Kirk's box. It just was too little, too little too late. But, but some, that thread of the appeal was actually working on some levels. There's a really interesting revival right now about that period of time between like, like 2151 and probably like the end of Kirk's era where you have Enterprise and the resurgence of love there because of all the different ways you can get it. Then you have like films like Axanar, you know, Star Trek Continues, and Pacific 201. I mean, there's there's a lot of love in that era because I think it's I think it's the I'm going to quote Scotty here. It's the, that's the era where you could feel what warp speed you were going by the way the deck plates were vibrating. It wasn't safe still. 
And I think that there's a still a, a set amount of romanticism involved when it comes to, and in this in Archer's speech at the very last episode, you know, it's like every time you turn around the corner, there's going to be something more noble and more wondrous to see. And I think when you go to, you know, Next Generation and DS9 and Voyager, I always felt that, well, maybe not so much Voyager, because I think Voyager was a little bit more of the TOS type of flavor, but the Federation was already, I'm going on a huge tangent, but bear with me. The Federation was already established. They were just pretty much doing maintenance, in my opinion. You know, they were, they were, they were you know, ferrying around diplomats back and forth. They were making sure that the status quo was okay. All of a sudden, you know, the Klingons have the civil war. We got to take care of that. But the Federation's okay. They're not really exploring. They're more like maintaining. Then you have the Kardashian uprising, and they're like, okay, um, okay, well, we'll bring the Bajorans into this. We'll bolster them. We'll bolster our defenses around all the deep space stations. You have Deep Space Nine. It's not exploration. It's not stagnant, but it's not exploration. You know, up to a, you know when you get to Deep Space Nine. So, but next generation. I mean, you know, TOS and um, Enterprise. It's all about. Are we even going to make it to the next mission? Is that going to happen? Are we going to run out of food? Are we going to explode? You know, or what's going to happen? It always felt like. Are our, are our weapons going to be too uh, inferior to the next guys we meet down the line? Yeah, like or, in Silent, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Silent Enemy, there's, right. our phasers, they have no effect. Are we going to be able to fight off those people that like strapped up the Axonar in fight or flight? What's, are we going to be able to talk to them? Is Universal Translator going to work? Yeah. I think that's, there's a lot of those expectations that aren't, uh, aren't readily met in, in this era. And it's, it's something that we, we take for granted when you see like really high-tech science fiction. You know, it's, it's. I'll say this though, Norm. I think it was brought up in the features too. I that's a really good point about this era, which which is why I also like this era too, and I like the 24th century. But there's an appeal to this era too. But I think there was a really important point that was brought up. I think it was either was it either Chris or Mike Sussman. I think, or maybe it could have been even John Billings. He said that there's a moment in the, I think the Broken Bow where Trip was talking about well. We've already gotten rid of poverty and war and disease. When he's talking right. to, to Paul about the accomplishments that humanity should feel um, proud about, and you know, and DePaul's trying to put a wet blanket on that, like, well, you haven't really done a lot. And he's like, we've done a lot already. And I think, I think that's right. There is, it was beginning to answer those questions, but because of the the, the friction of the tension that Enterprise had to be, where it had to be a prequel but not too much of a prequel. I think you had beginning to explore the rougher edges of humanity but a lot of a lot of that had already been settled right the fact that their united earth was still peaceful and they had solved all those big problems it was it was it's the it's the ultimate tension of enterprise where it's it wants to be the prequel but it's being it's being hindered in a lot of ways that it can't really fully explore its premise which is why i really want that show still right i really want the show that Enterprise should have been the true prequel, the true prequel that was right after mm-hmm. First Contact, except from Cochrane, but but even before Archer now, right? So how literally did we get to stop killing each other, right? How did we, you know, end mm-hmm. disease and poverty on this grand scale? And for me, that still hasn't been told yet. It's still just kind of we've glossed over that and we've done some different things. And that's not to take away from what Enterprise contributed. But for me, there's still that gaping hole. Like there is still a lot to explore right there in that in that time era no that's true and gosh, i wish we had infinite time but you know that's well you're gonna have to write that down for another show topic and larry we're gonna have to bring you back for that gonna write it <laughs> down i'm using i'm <laughs> using the retro paper they use in the cage where they apparently just have paper <laughs> that they're just have like a three-wing binder where they just flip it over like okay done. his little metal clipboard in his room yep. i love that 
Yeah, much less on the bridge up. But no, I mean, I just love this because it's there's. I was just sitting here thinking how many parallels I'm. I'm like having. I'm getting slapped with a wet noodle here on on these things. Like because when Enterprise came out, there was almost like a mini echo of the whole. And I kind of touched on a minute. You know, when Next Generation premiered, it was a Gene Roddenberry created show, and you had a chunk of fandom that that could not accept the fact they weren't redoing. They weren't wiping out. Uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and that mm-hmm. whole time period, and everything that had happened, they were they were doing the genius thing of moving eighty years. They weren't rebooting and recasting. They were going seventy eight years. I remember that seventy eight years in the future. Um, they were doing that, so all of that was still canon and was still honored. But this was new. This was a hundred years later, and the challenge was all about how do we show the culture and the technology being, you know, more advanced, and how do we compare and contrast? And oh, there's a cling on the bridge, but. Um, and, and and you had some of that growing pains with Enterprise starting off. How do we, you know, only it was in production. How do we show a ship older than Kirk's but with technology twenty years, you know, and, and visual effects twenty years later or forty years later than the sixties were? Um, but oh, I had a, I had, I had a thread here going with some this some, somewhere. But but some of the some of the dilemmas they had with Enterprise, it's 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 striking me how they were some of the same things they were. Um, that they were dealing with on the original series. And when this comes back to me fully, I'll, I'll get back to it. Well, I mean, you, you actually tackle this a little bit in a couple of your segments in, in the third part of the documentary called Final oh, okay. Approach. And I want to ask uh, all three of you um, your reactions to these two particular segments that Larry uh, was, was featured in. The first part, it was the opening. And you said, um, Larry, you said that the idea of a Trek show could just die was unheard of at the time. And this would have been in 2005, 2004, mm-hmm. 2005. It wasn't going to seven seasons and maybe even movies. UPN wasn't even seen. This is what boggles my mind. UPN wasn't even seen in all markets. Its programming was often preempted, which made it really hard for oh, Enterprise yeah. to succeed. I think he even mentioned that it was preempted for sporting events or, or local news. Or um, Let's start off with Je- Jeff. Yeah, so yeah. Jeff, I mean, we've had yeah. this conversation before. I mean, could you, I mean, you had to feel that. I mean, even in our market, you had to feel that when when you kind of started feeling, uh, and for lack of a better term, the death knell of what was happening with Enterprise. Well, even when it was going on, I saw the parallels to the original series. I mean, they almost got canceled, and then they just barely got renewed, and then they got moved to the you know Friday nights, and I was like, this is probably going to be the last season, even though everything else had gone seven years before it. I, I just kind of saw the writing on the wall when season four came out, and I figured this was probably going to be the end, and I was just glad that it went out with really strong uh, for the final season. Except for yeah. that last one. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? And we'll get to that later. Well, the, the, the final episode got redeemed in the books, at least. And not not the entire final episode. The, the Archer speech bits were made a lot of sense. It was just that weird little plot. It was so it was like it was so annoying because it went back to it's like all of a sudden after a year, Rick and Brandon like jerked it back and and wrote. And I just remember watching those, reading the script and watching those scenes and going, "Well, we're back to not naming the aliens, either a species or you know." It was oh like, yeah, yeah, that's alien right. kidnapper, alien. Like, where? What are these species? Can you at least give them a name? Because they're all like one-offs that don't have any bearing on anything. I, I just, I was like, "Yep, okay, we're back to uh, the not fanboys writing a script again." I mean, Jolene like, was really mad, right? I think that was mm-hmm. the, the one of her few yeah. 
um, really animated segments on the entire documentary was her just talking about how she's like, I said some things which I probably shouldn't have said. Yeah, that cannot be understated. Right. And and I and I probably agree with her. Right. If she coming off of Terra Prime and Demons and how strong it was. And then this is the finale. Like I would have probably said this, said said the exact same things. I think it's really interesting. Her tea and crumpets line is will always be etched in my at the time when she was giving. It was about like a lot like Robert Beltran the last couple of years of Voyager. When she was talking about, she was she was talking about Rick, and she said, "Yeah, someone's sitting off in their tea and crumpets in their ivory tower, having golf every other day, or something like that." Where she was talking about not being hands-on with the show and not being available to solve problems, and it's like, "Wow, that's out in the open." Okay, short life on this show, yeah. Thrown bombs. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure if that was on the if on the documentaries. Is that something that she's been quoted? As no, saying? I'm talking. No, I mean, it was in the news of the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. these were it, these were things that she was saying publicly. Mm-hmm. Right. You remember, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The tea and crumpets line. I will always remember that going. Wow. Okay. And then there was the there was John's line in the documentary about like they never quote me. But the one time they quote me was when I said, man, they screwed the fans the one time, which is I mean, I I love the fact that they're honest because they knew it was the end. Right. So they could be really liberated to say all these things. But it's it was pretty damning. And I can't say that. I blame them. I know where they're coming from. And it was, yeah. But I mean, Anthony Montgomery brings this point up. I think Scott does too. And I also believe that John brings this up. And this is the other part, the other question that Larry, you're featured in. Um, And you said that Enterprise overlapped with Battlestar Galactica season one. And Battlestar Mm -hmm. Galactica was considered a breakout hit for that year. Enterprise was judged as a network show and Battlestar Galactica as a cable show. So for Battlestar Galactica, the ratings were good, but you say, ironically, it still had fewer viewers in raw numbers than Enterprise Mm -hmm. did in season four, but the standards were different. What standards are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, uh, again, the perception in Hollywood ease. And a lot of this has gone away with the era of Netflix and and DVD and on-demand and streaming and, you know, and binge-watching and all that. But back when we were still clinging to, uh, you know, the aired weekly numbers of The King, uh, somebody pointed this out either right at the end of the season or at the end of the show or within a year or so to me that UPN, despite being, like you said, the crippled little network that only had maybe 80 percent penetration in the markets or whatever, and it would be on, you know, like Channel 37 Buffalo. Oh, we're preempting for Sabres hockey. Or something, whatever. They would because UPN came along so late. They had they didn't get the primary numbers, and we've gone so much with cable now that it, that's a little less important. But still, and the lesser stations that were making up that weren't networks, or they were cheap networks, or they were making their revenue by having uh, sporting events, just like a lot of radio stations cover carry uh, sports that preempt their regular programming. But the fact was that UPN, and and after eleven years, the WB was. They started at the same point. The WB even was way far ahead of building an audience and an identity than UPN was because of its three or four eras of failed management or just Keystone Cops management. Um, but but Enterprise came out in the weekly ratings. The whole thing with Next Gen and DS9 even was that every week they would come out with the special syndicated market ratings that were compiled because 
if you were a network show, you were on it this uh, theoretically. You were on it. You were on at eight o'clock Monday, or you were on it. You know, nine o'clock Thursday, or whatever it was. If you were a syndicated show, each market puts you on at a different space. So sometimes you next gen would be on at six on Saturdays, or seven on Saturdays, or ten thirty on Sunday nights. If you were in Oklahoma City, you know, wherever it was through the week. And in LA, it was the first night. Monday was the first night of the week for the syndication week for next gen, and it was always at. Eight or nine o'clock on Monday nights in LA and a lot of other places. So you never got that head-to-head comparison. So the Nielsen ratings were meaningless. You had to have a special service. There were a couple of ones in, in uh, NTI, and then I think Nielsen's had a syndicated, but NTI was bigger because that's what the promotion people would always quote. But they would take market by market by market, and they had formulas, and they would put it together, and they would come up with a total audience like raw numbers and a couple of other figures. And then by the time Next Gen got to be such a hit by the fourth and fifth and sixth seasons, they could put those numbers together and go, look, it's not a network show, but it's got better numbers than Roseanne. It's got more, better numbers than Cheers. It's got better, you know, and they would go through all these known network hits and go, look, you know, it's got better ratings than the World Series. It's got better, you know, that would make an impact in a variety or a Hollywood Reporter ad and a trade paper ad. And that's when next gen people got on the radar screens of Hollywood suits and people who dealt in the industry. Oh, look, it's not just this syndicated show on crappy little, you know, whatever. Despite all that, it's breaking through and it has huge numbers. So the whole thing of Voyager and then Enterprise being on a network was at last. We won't have to go through all those contortions. We can just see the, rec- the numbers. And of course, that's when. <laughs> After the big splashy pilots, that's when the numbers started going down, and people are like, "Well, what's the big deal here?" So after seven years of guaranteed, you know, being the the golden child of Voyager, and then a couple of years of that with Enterprise, and then the game changing to where Moonves finally gets rid of the the goofy little UPN management after its third or fourth iteration, and says, "We're just going to run you ourselves." And oh, by the way, all you people, you got to—it's Hollywood, it's reality, it's, this is the real world. Get your numbers up, or you're out of here. Yeah. No, no favored nation. So, being on that 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 thing, it was always down in the nineties. And saying that they were the highest rated show on UPN was, you know, damning with faint praise. So yes, right, right. so Galactica right. was in a cable network. It was this big hit. It was oh, it's so dark and gritty, and we all know what happened with Galactica. But it was on a cable satellite. You know, it was on Sci-Fi. So it was yeah. like USA and all those. So yeah, the actual numbers when you actually did the math was about a million more viewers in a show for Enterprise than Galactica. But that's all the background going into that. But that's, that's the way Hollywood perceived things. So they were, it was like big fish, small pond, small fish in a big pond. You know, the one thing that, and it still kind of boggles me a little bit, that in this last, well, actually, this is the third of four uh, of, the, of the documentary segments, 23 out of the 30 minutes, it was about, you know, these... Um, all of these different, you know, uh, anecdotes of uh, why the show was going down, but seven minutes of it was dedicated to the last show, the last, uh, the very last show of Star Trek ever. These are the voyages. Did you I count those minutes, Norm? That seems very precise. I did. <laughs> I did <laughs> because I wanted more. I wanted. I wanted to know. Well, a they alluded to, or, or, or Manny alluded to, the fact that Rick and Brandon always wanted to do the last show. And the reason I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you know we have to acknowledge the fact that we're talking about a documentary that's mentioning the very last show of the very mm-hmm. last series of all of Star Trek, and so far, so far, so far, okay. yes. 
the reason why and, and the, the, the choices that were made and Rick coming in after all this time. I mean, he wasn't really that all that involved with Enterprise after like the, what, the first season. So he went to come back and do this. I'm going to put this to you guys. Do you think it was just a matter of hubris? Like, I'm Rick Berman. I'm Brandon Braga. This is our show. We're going to do what we need to do. Was it really a Valentine? Is there something that's, I don't know, that they wanted to just to, to leave behind with the fans? Obviously, a lot of fans don't really sit well with the way that These Are the Voyages was executed. But was their heart in the right place? That's the most important thing. Because did they do it for the right reasons and it just came out wrong? Or did they do it because it was just a matter of pride and we wanted to say, like, hey, we ran this show for 18 some odd years. We have the right to do this, even though it wasn't the right thing to do. Honestly, I think it, it's the latter because there's, I think there's a really telling remark by Chris Black, I think, in another segment where he says, no one sets out to make bad television. No one sets out yeah, yeah. to do this. And I actually mentioned this on, uh, on Oral Grey when we did the, These Are the Voyages for, for their podcast. That episode would have been great if it wasn't the finale. It would have been great as inserted, let's say, in a season five, dare, dare I say, if Enterprise gone to season five or, or somewhere down the road. You where, dare say, dare ahead, dare ahead. I know, right? Um, it would have been great as like, you know, that kind of alternate universe take or, or very like sweet or like, you know, winking at the fans. If it was just a, 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 a two-parter or if it was just an episode in the middle of a season. But for the fact that it was coming off of such a strong run of shows and that it was coming towards the end, I think I think their intentions are right. I think it, for them it was very much a Valentine for Star Trek when in reality fans wanted an ending to Enterprise. And I think there was this, there was this, this disconnect with them coming in because they were so removed from, from the fourth season. They felt like since this was the end of this show and for, for for Star Trek in the foreseeable future, they wanted to do this, and it was their prerogative. And I think Manny just kind of had to back away from it. I think they meant it with the right intentions, but it was really just interpreting the fans. Uh, I, I think it was just reading the, the fandom in the completely wrong way. I think they meant it in the best possible way, but they really should have been able to read the fans in a much better way and they couldn't do it because arguably they weren't there for the fourth season they were just doing it because it was the last star trek episode period when in reality they i think the fans wanted all the, the finale to be about enterprise jeff i want you to give the uh the listeners out there that very special story of <laughs> what happened to you when you were going to watch the the finale of enterprise and, and how did you how did you feel about that i mean how did you feel about the just what did, what did you take away from it? Did you feel that it was the Valentine that you wanted? Or was it something else? Was it the box of Valentine candy full of dark chocolate coconut? Half-eaten candy. <laughs> <laughs> or really bad apricot pits in the middle. No, what? No, um, I, I've shared the story a couple of times now, but... Uh, um, yeah, I was I was stationed in Las Vegas. I was in the, the Air Force, uh, at Nellis Air Force Base at the time. And... I had gotten tickets to go see the uh, both the the uh, second part of the Terra Prime Demons uh, two parter and the uh, uh, these are the voyages. They were both airing back to back that night. We were going to see them on the big screen in the Borg 4D theater at uh, Star Trek: The Experience, and 
I yes, missed... the experience was still in existence uh, yes, then. Yes, and I missed That's the helped. bus because I didn't have a car at the time, and uh, I, I had to catch the bus to get down to the Strip, which it was like a 10, 15-minute drive from uh, from the base, and I, I missed the bus, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. Uh, so I, I was very disappointed uh, that I missed it, and then I finally got to see it probably a day or two later, um, after uh, getting home, and was even further disappointed uh, by what I had seen because uh, I mean I I had heard all this stuff they're saying it's a Valentine to the fans, and I see this and I'm like you know what what the hell is this? And uh, you know it, I was like you know they did they even watch any of the fourth season before they wrote it? <laughs> um, you know a lot of this development for the characters seemed to have been ignored. Um, you know and some things just just seemed very random and uh, um, it, it just felt out of place to me and then there was the whole part with being holograms and I was like are they saying that the whole show is a hologram uh, and Jolene thought so yeah and even she was saying even to this day she's not sure if she was or not um, and it, it's just it was more confusing than it needed to be um, I, I understand what they were trying to go for, and you know, th- I think their heart was in the right place. They were trying to say, you know, you know, build a bridge between the next generation and Enterprise, and it's like, you know, next generation crew are looking back on the events of this time period using the holodeck, and I can understand where they were trying to do with that, but it just fell flat. Um, yeah, it didn't work for me. Um, I was pretty displeased with it. You know, ten years later after they launched, and Mayweather is still an ensign. I mean, it's worse than Harry Kim. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it it I just never sat very well with me. Uh, I I didn't enjoy it, but uh, um, I've kind of learned to live with it, especially now that they addressed it in the books. Um, and. Yeah, you know, I I can uh, I can kind of accept it, you know, because I I understand what they were trying to do with it. Now, Larry, we saw you in the group scenes at the end, and you were obviously there on set because you were on camera. It may not be in the Blu-rays, but what was just the general overall feeling? If you can remember, you know, maybe like a little five-minute segment of just how did you feel? What was the feeling on set? What was just the general attitude at the time? Well, I mean, I remember. I think in the writers. Uh, in the writers' reunion, I think Mike mentions hearing when the show was formally canceled because it was three days after um, what Babel One. It was it was the Babel One trilogy, their their show, and that that they really enjoyed doing. And then they found it. But I also remember because they were filming uh, either part one or part two of In a Mirror Darkly, and all the Enterprise bridge sets and the Vulcan landing foot from the Plana half was up on stage. All that stuff was up, and everybody had been having such a good time running over and taking pictures and enjoying watching all that happen and then having the and people actually starting to dare to think that maybe all this was going to save them another year and then it came down and people were like yanked back to normal and everybody those last weeks and months around the lot um uh you know being being melancholy determined to get through no one's quitting people are all giving their all the actors the crew everybody but as the closer it got on, they couldn't help. There was a little undertow of that. And there was a very practical thing because a lot, some of the people, and they took a group picture. There's about uh, 15, 18 people in this. The people who had been working on modern TV Star Trek since day one, since day one of the, you know, since the pilot, since Farpoint, 
And a lot of people, even if they hadn't worked all 18 years, even just 5, 6, 8, 10, 12 years since late next gen or, or whatever, there are a lot of people who professionally had worked on Star Trek for that long. And it's like any industry when you're – it's like the good side is you've got a steady job, but the bad side is you've it's like you've been in a deep freeze and you haven't been out there. Larry, let me interrupt you for one second because you just basically crossed into my end of an era, part four oh. uh, introduction. Okay. So let this me is, back this up. Is, no, no, no. It's fine. It's okay. fine. It's just the mood yeah, for that last is, day. Yeah, this because that's how it kind of like segues from the part three to part four, and you're you're right in the middle of it okay. because you actually talk about this. Okay, well then that's why it's coming up. Yeah. So so that last shoots what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was very bittersweet, and I remember people kind of snapping out at the time and looking at me and saying, "Gee, is how's the communicator in the fan club going to be?" And I was like, "Oh, we'll be okay till the next thing." comes out. I did not knowing that Decipher would go downhill and that Viacom would split and that, that almost all the entire terrain of Star Trek, no matter what occupied what corner you occupied. Oh, you I, were there for the Decipher days too, huh? I we I edited Communicator from yeah, from ninety eight on. So yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But at the time I remember in the spring, uh, people would kinda go, Wow, what are you gonna do? And it's like, oh no, we've got tons of stuff to talk about, you know, uh, after the show is down before knowing what was going to happen with the next year. But, um, no, it was a bittersweet day. And Majel and Rod came down, as they had done at the end of all the other shows. It was just more public. It was a lot like the um, – it was really interesting because the mix of people, most of the people on Enterprise were Voyager people that came over, with the exception of, like, the art department guys who weren't on working both shows anyway. But most of the crew types were through the lineage of Voy- Next Gen through Voyager in, into Enterprise. So the memory of what Ira and the producers did for the last day of DS9, you know, the infamous Vic's Lounge scene where they had all the guest extras and some of the alien guys out of their makeup were in the audience. And it was a really emotional thing. It was it was like a senior day and it was the last day and people running around, you know, people who weren't in the show were coming in and scripts and call sheets and people signing stuff like it was after the graduation party. It was it was that same thing. The Next Gen's last day and Voyager's last day were just little insular not built into anything like that. And they kind of just quietly for different reasons. Next Gen was hurry up, we have to get out of here so we can have 2 weeks to rest up so we can come jump in our movie. And Voyagers was like, would you all hurry up and get off the stages so we can build these new, cool, exciting things for Enterprise? <laughs> uh, it was kind of like a, you know, don't let the door hit you on your butt on the way out the door. Enterprise, they made this concerted effort to have an event. And having that guest extra scene in the audience was, was part of that. And it was, it was very cool. And to me, that as much as everybody hates the way those, the uh, adventure, you know, the actual mission scenes of These Are the Voyages comes out. It is a very sweet, bittersweet, and cool day. It was like a Vix Lounge scene when we shot the guest extras with the green screen to hear Archer's speech. And um, and I and unlike DS9, when I left about midnight, I stayed for the whole damn thing, and because they shot the shuttle pod scenes and they shot um, uh, Bill uh, Flocks and to Paul with Archer before he goes out to make the speech. That that scene they actually shot that bit last, and it was all some like new sets that they had to build. Um, and and watching not just the crew but watching the cast. I mean, watching you know, Connor and and uh, and Scott hug and watching everybody say their goodbyes and just it it was that same. It, it was it was just like senior graduation day and and um, realizing that it had piled up like that on other shows with the added level of 
and what a lot of people, and you've touched on this now, didn't realize just sitting at home watching that show go by and going, eh, but that the what permeated everything at the lot was that, and not even so much for the cast because it was their show, but a lot of the crew from Rick and Brandon down through a lot of that crew, it wasn't just the end of this four-year show. It was the end of an era. It was the end of their 10, 12, 15, 18 years working. And that did permeate everything, and for better or worse, uh, it permeated the show, and that informed some of the writing choices they made. And at the same time, I think the little visual effects bit at the end, I think the Kirk, you know, voiceover segueing into Picard's voiceover with the appropriate ship, and then letting Archer say where no man's gone before at the end, and having the having NX-01 fly off, I thought that was very sweet. That and what you were just work, talking yeah. about was that that came out of the same place that their choices for the show came out of. They were totally wrong. And I, there's a piece of me wanted to say, well, guys, I, I don't think anybody blames you for wanting to come back and do this last show, not just because the end of the series, but because it's the end of 18 years. And that's the way they looked at it, especially much less a lot of other people. But this is <laughs> this episode. This is why we wound up in this place in the first place. It's kind of like this is how we got here. Remember? And I just remember feeling like like quiplash. Like, oh wow, okay, we suddenly went from the Manny season back to, you know, um, the not totally TOS informed direction and vibe of things. So I just remember it kind of being a whiplash. Uh, and going, really? Really? And like I said, it was kind of like, well, look, none of the aliens have names or species names. Yep, we're back to, you know, just come up with some cool makeup kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was another thing that really got me was uh, it's the last episode of Enterprise, and you see the Enterprise D through the entire episode up until the final scene when you finally see the NX-01. <laughs> right. So that's actually a good – I was going to ask you uh, actually uh, ask you this, Larry – the uh, the sets for the Enterprise D that they're walking did they rebuild parts of that for that yes episode? and I took oh by the way I took pictures of all this stuff I have it put back yeah no they they got the holodeck door had been in storage and they pulled that out and they built uh, they had the they had the observation lounge table had been used for the ease table so they had it stored so um, and this is you know this is before all the big Christie auctions in the sick in in two thousand six. So um, a lot of the stuff was still safely stuck in warehouses because nobody knew what was coming down the pike. So no, they they rebuilt they rebuilt that corridor turn and they rebuilt the holodeck door area, and uh, I want to say something else, but uh, no, no, they they yeah. But it's they not quite the a lot same. Of, it's some green screen, not a lot, but the doorway and the corridor and um, and something else. Can't remember what was it was. Was it the ships, the 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 golden ships and the observation lounges, the Enterprises? Uh, at that point, they didn't have the golden chips up on the wall. Yeah, because I was going to say it looked different when they were in the observation lounge. It looked different. Because that was only up for like the first two seasons, I think. Yeah. Well, no, they went down uh, for Star Trek VI, and then Richard James didn't like them, and so they uh, – like between four and five, I think. So they went away, and then Ron Moore rescued them, and they stayed at his garage <laughs> until he until the, the uh, statute of limitations had run out, and you could talk about it. But, um, but yeah, no, but they did, they did uh, build – a lot of that that was part see that was what was charming though i mean at the time thinking well this is cool but i do remember at the time also just being people there i know that jonathan and marina the day we shot the extra scene and they were up in the back uh for a lot of it did have this i didn't really talk to him much because there was so much going on but 
there was kind of an uncomfortability like they, of course they were happy to come in and work and do the thing and play their roles but i think they felt like they were intruding like shouldn't this be their party you know mm-hmm. <laughs> shouldn't it going to be their show and it wasn't even like they were a cameo it was like no we're the narrative envelope for the whole thing they're so, the through line yeah, yeah they're the through line so it's um i remember them at the time feeling it's it was like you said. If it had been a show in the middle of a season, people would have felt more on the ground of critiquing and going, "Well, this is not going to be." You know, well, this show is a dog. Oh, this is such a cool show. Whatever mm-hmm. the vibe was, but people were so wrapped up in the emotion of the ending that even their normal levels of you know individual show critique were kind of frayed a little bit because people were just embroiled in the emotion of the ending, and whether that was looking back or whether that was holy fuck, I've got to go. Oh, excuse me, holy, you know. I've got to go out and find a job for the first time in 15 years somewhere else, you know, yeah. and being paranoid about that because that was a, that's a real world concern that was underlying a lot of the emotion. It wasn't just people's sentimentality. They were talking – like I said, they, it's like being in a deep freeze for 15 years and sometimes those are good stats. But sometimes a lot of shows, depending on what your, your field is, they go, wow, so you've done Star Trek for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, do you know we use digital cameras now? Or do you know, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. We don't use rubber heads here. It's just straight-ahead makeup, you know, or whatever. Um, oh, sure, it's very insular. And, yeah. and you can tell, I mean, I, you know, just to um, just to kind of like encapsulate uh, this last segment, the one thing that I really took away from from this last part, you could just feel in Mike Okuda's stories and his memories just how fond he was of working those like all that time Mm -hmm. but the emotion that i think he's actually holding back and and the reservation that he has is just it's just it's admirable because you know that he wanted to pour his heart out on the camera but i don't think he's that guy i don't know him from adam but you know he's just you know he's like he's very grateful he is you know sitting next to denise and they were saying that we've we've done this together you know drive in probably have our morning coffee talk about daily life, hit the set, work, come back home, probably talk about work, wash, rinse, and repeat for what, 18 years? Yeah, they were, yeah, well, Mike was. Denise came in okay. four, five, six years into it. But right, yeah, Mike had. Mike was one of the first four, five, six people hired. Mike was one of the people that he and Rick were hired before Herman was on season one of Next Gen because it was like Bob just, they were so paranoid about being behind to get stuff going, you know, from square one that uh, Mike had worked on Star Trek Four, and it was just like everybody else. Oh, I kept it. I've got your phone, and I'm, I, I'd love to drop my portfolio off. And, you know, um, that look that he brought to the A revamped, you know, the all-gleaming white A bridge at the end of Four, at the end of the wheels, at the voyage home. That was the um, birth of the Akutagram was in... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That? And that and that technology of, no, we don't have to t- sculpture and put a lot of bul- you know bulbs and whistles and things textured panels we can just print out these uh film things and have it look high tech and sleek and oh that's great and that was part of what sold him you know to bob it was like here's a whole new concept for doing this and they were like great fine sold bang (laughs) quick cheap and it looks great i love it go (laughs) and and just one last one last thing on this segment because i really do think he was being very sincere about it and it was really nice to have uh, brandon end the segment but he said that he reflects that his time on Enterprise was bittersweet. Mm-hmm. He said he felt when he burned out, but he says, and I believe it, he says that time heals all wounds, as they say, and not just for him, but for the fans as well, because a lot of fans are coming back to it. Um, I worked um, a convention earlier on this year uh, in Anaheim called WonderCon, 
and there were mm-hmm. fans that were coming up talking about Enterprise. They must have been like 18 years old, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what brought you to watching this show? And they said, well, the J.J. movies were the introduction, but because Enterprise was the newest, the earliest in the timeline, but also the newest as the franchise, right. they said it was the easiest connection to make. And then they just kind of like worked backwards because they went from Enterprise to Voyager <laughs> to Deep Space Nine. And I found that really charming because it's available now. And uh-huh. there isn't that, there, there isn't the gravitas of all the drama and all the politics. They're just watching it purely for the content, which I think is fantastic. And they're making the judgment based on, does this entertain me? Is this Star Trek to me? And do I connect with these characters? And there was a lot of just a resounding yes going on there and I found that fantastic so yes I know that there were the problems and and you know in wrapping up all of our deliberations and all of our research and all of our discussions on seasons one through four I think it is fair to say that Enterprise for me is the series that probably just had the most heart they tried so hard against probably the most insurmountable odds they succeeded at many levels they were challenged at many levels and they hit some pretty low notes but all in all it's a fantastic series to watch and if you love star trek you owe it to yourself to watch it at least just for the continuity and for understanding how it fits into the timeline so as much as i would love to get into the the writing part uh, the the writer staff documentary which is another <laughs> 90 minutes of it's amazing. You're the most bang there, for your Mike buck Sussman, uh, um, sorry, Andre Bormanis, David Goodman, Chris Black, Phyllis, uh, the Reeve Stevens, and unfortunately Manny. I mean, there's still a ton of content there, so that's in the Blu-ray. Unfortunately, it, Manny you know. missed it. That's what you and should. Manny missed it. Right, yes. Manny missed it. Yeah, and uh, just you have, you know, if you have the means or if you can borrow it, um, heck, call me. I will. I will lend you my copy. You know. Uh, what, you yeah, have to watch cool. these. You know? Yeah, you <laughs> have true. to watch these. You, as, your, as an Enterprise fan, you owe it to yourself. As a fan of Star Trek, at least to understand what happened. Because it's not what you think all the time. Mm-hmm. Star, you know, like, Will, you said this perfectly, and you were quoting, it was, it was either Brandon or one of the writers, they're not out to set out to make poor quality product. Nobody does that. They're out to make the best quality product they can. The challenges were there, and it's just being flexible enough to overcome those challenges is where you had your peaks and valleys and you know if you really look at enterprise there were a lot of really good peaks there were some pretty significant valleys but there were some really good peaks and you always you always appreciate it and accept it how you are how your mentality is watching it you know if you wanted to hate it because you wanted to hate on star trek at the time you're not going to find a lot there if you want to just watch it with refreshed in renewed vigor 10 years later i think you're going to find a lot of value in that show so for me just trying to to wrap up this entirety of these four dvds i give this one probably my highest recommendation because of that documentary it's four 30 minute segments and i give it my highest rating how about you guys I feel like I need to give you one of those slow claps Saval gives to Archer's speech because it was so good. Like, you know, the slow clap where everyone starts clapping. Like, yeah, that was a Which good Which is speech. funny because that's an emotional outburst. And for a Vulcan leading that charge, it was, you know, where Saval's, you know, he was, the emotions were right up that's there. That's true. Yeah, I think I can only echo your, your thoughts on that. And I love the fact that because 
ironically enough, because Enterprise was the last, so far, the last Star Trek series to be made, and because there's been so much time that's passed since that, and because it was an end of an era of Trek, the Blu-ray's features here have such a wealth of information because of the unique position that Enterprise is in, that you get to have such a retrospective on the entirety of the franchise. You have Brandon and Rick being very honest with each other. You have Manny being very honest. You have the, the actors being very honest with each other. And there's a lot that, that's also not said to you. I'm a big fan of reading body language, and I've mentioned this before in, in early podcasts. Although we learn a lot from this stuff, there's also so much more I'm sure they're not telling us. And I'm sure there's so much there that you can kind of read between the lines too, and there's so much going on with this show which is what makes it so interesting to talk about despite only having four seasons i mean all the other series have seven seasons or they have movies but you know this is just four seasons that's it but because of where it sits in this weird not weird but very uh, particular timeline of it's the first chronologically in universe but it's chronologically the last so it's in this weird cross zone of of being early and late but because it's also the last trek series before jj it, there's so much wrapped into it and it's so interesting i think that's what makes enterprise so fun to talk about it's what makes this show uh fun to talk about every week and yeah enterprise has a lot of underrated value i think people are now just discovering it now and my one regret is you know is the what if because i think if they got additional seasons you know manny Cotto could have been the showrunner for an entire dare I say, another generation of Trek, there might not have been a J.J. Trek if if they'd been able to survive. I know that pretty much by the fourth season, they knew they didn't survive. But it's really interesting to say that right around now, they're really starting to hit their stride. I mean, if they, if certain dominoes had fallen a different way, we could, have had, we could have had three more years of Trek in a completely different Trek universe than we have now. And it's so interesting to think about that Rick Berman could have passed and Brandon Broad could have passed it to a new quote-unquote showrunner for all of Trek, and I think that's really interesting to think about. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I agree with you, Will. Um, I found these uh, the documentaries on this were just really interesting, and like I said, there were things that they talked about that I didn't even know about, and considering uh, all the, uh, the knowledge that I've accrued over decades of uh, immersing myself in this, uh, it's, uh, that says something. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it I, I really enjoyed the fourth season just from the stories and the episodes, but the the extra things that I learned from all the, the documentaries on this, you know, not just the ones uh, that are exclusive on the Blu-ray, but also the ones that were carried over from the DVDs is just really interesting material. I and mean, there's hours and hours and hours of it on there. And it, it's just so much stuff on all of these Blu-ray sets. Uh, it, it's just a wealth of material on there. And how about you, Larry? Your final thoughts? Yeah, and I and I had the privilege of getting to talk on this one a lot. Um, or they use it like they didn't use anything on season three, but they apparently they saved it all for this year. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the next you were talking about the irony of timing, and we and I used to think about that as, in terms of the like I said, like how do you do prequel the '60s show, but with aughts, aughts technology, you know, versus '60s TV production technology. But it is in a unique place. The Next Gen and um, the Enterprise documentaries, I guess the original series too, but it seems increasingly so because so many of the people who would speak on the original series uh, documentaries aren't with us anymore because of just the immense time. 
But the next gens were refreshingly honest, and people got to talk. And like Michael's not around, but Ira got to talk about the third season. They didn't. They did. Even they did not get into the stuff that Shatner's recent documentary did with Maury Hurley, who passed away. Who I tried to talk to two or three times and never wanted to talk. I I just think they had to have thrown a ton of money at him to do that. And then uh, and then he died very soon after that was produced, which was kind of amazing. So um, the next gens are very. Uh, they enjoy the next gens and the enterprises enjoy the place of time of nobody has a job to protect anymore. The original, even the original enterprises were done within, if not the end of no, they weren't done at the end of enterprise, but within a year or two, people still felt very fresh and raw or close to it. And people, you know, it's just like the the the, the psychic statute limitation had not run out to a comfort zone yet to where people people hadn't worked two or three more jobs. It just hadn't passed by and a lot had been said on next generation they weren't so revelatory except for a couple of places but even more so with the enterprises here people felt free even in groups people felt freer to you know, they didn't have a job to protect and they didn't worry about well if i want to work with him again sometime even or get cast with them sometime again so people did just feel very fresh so it's uh, and I hadn't thought about it so much as far as the tech, but but um, I think it was uh, Will said this too, but it, or, or maybe Norm, you said this about the fans because I've had the same thing too. And, and like I said, I love Doug's line about we've had a whole new generation of Enterprise fans who don't know they're supposed to hate the show, and for whatever reason, that HD Blu-ray hoop that uh, people get over before they they're attract you know it's the initial thing before they get sucked in and seduced by the stories and the characters. It's what their preconditions are, their preconceptions are about the presentation. And, oh, if this is HD and this is modern effects versus I can never watch those original series shows with the cheesy effects and the you know pajama costumes and everything. But then they eventually get into it because they're drawn by the story and the characters. And that is a, that is a great bonus. And the idea that it is – because I've had people come up to me who said, no, it's not because of J.J. I just had people who beat on me for years. You should be watching Star Trek. And they pick out something and they go. Or it's been the Netflix – and then these box sets with the with the the great you know presentation and the new features, and that's what gets them in, or especially with the Netflix free streaming. But um, but there is a whole new. You sound like an old man there, Norm. There is a whole generation of people who are not part of the not even the knowing the politics, just the week to week waiting, and sometimes that feels sad. Like uh, oh, they'll never know what it was like to wait over Best of Both Worlds summer, you know, and have that agony. On the other hand, uh, it's cool that that's, that's the way it will be. I mean, that's where the original series has been for years. There's going to mm-hmm. be more and more, fewer and fewer people who watched it week to week and more and more people who will know Star Trek as a thing. They go into the big wall of boxes and pull down or the big wall of icons on Netflix and choose what they want to watch and then binge watch it. So um, it's really interesting to think that the failed show now is the one that may be people's first stop coming in but the set is amazing i forgot until i got back to it that it, it is it's two hours of docs and a 90 minute special it's just amazing and it's well done and very refreshingly honest and um i'm i'm really 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 glad these got done even if we'll never have any more you know voyager and ds9 never get the same treatment or at least for a long time it, it is it's really really great and anybody that just wants to know how tv is it's just like going back to stephen poe's original classic making a star trek book even if you're not the biggest Star Trek fan, just knowing the vibe that actors and writers and production people have as a place to work and try to be creative, um, 
it's just invaluable to see how people just carry themselves and talk because, I mean, I got to, to witness that myself and that informs everything I do. And this is a great introduction to that, to that ease and familiarity and going, oh, how do I look at this without just being the person sitting at home watching it every week? It was a place where they worked and where they got frustrated and where they, you know, where 9-11 happened while they were at work and what it was like <laughs> for them that day. So all of that stuff, it's just, I, if you're really going to step up and be a deep dive fan, it's, yeah, you just have to. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to tackle this. And, and these are my final thoughts here for the show. Um, it's because they're not just great products, because they are. And, and I was really disappointed in the DVD release because we knew that it was shot a certain way and DVD can only provide a certain amount of quality and you know, your, your final output, your maximum output, your maximum output, you can't get any more than 420 lines per screen, you know, but when it came out finally in HD and finally they actually made the concerted effort to get all of these documentaries done, to get the crew together, to get all the writers together, to get all these memories down for posterity and memoriam, that's worth its weight in gold, especially if you can get it at the discounted price that they're offering at right now. I encourage anybody to watch Enterprise. And if you want to watch it on you know, Hulu and Netflix or however you want to get it, that's fine. But like you said, and I love that, that phrase you used, if you want to be a deep dive fan, if you want to go in all the way and, and maybe learn something, because I'm sure Tommy Kraft, you know, who is a huge fan of this, and you know, he's probably learned a great deal of what he, need to, what he needs to bring on Horizon from studying a lot of these um, archival documents. I mean, this is what you owe it to yourself to do that. And, and please do, because a lot of people put a lot of work into this, and it is the end of an era. I feel a little uh, verklempt, you know, I'll use that word again, to, to come to the end of this, um, this four-part or this fourth episode of, of talking about the Blu-rays, because in watching these Blu-rays, we're revisiting, at least the special features, we're revisiting why we love this show in the first place, why we love Star Trek in the first place. It's about, sometimes it's about the cast we love. And I love this cast, and I'm sure a lot of people do. But it's also about the people that are bringing us the show. And you're right, Larry, it's the Mike's, you know, and the nieces and the Dugs in the world. I, I wish we got to see Doug in some of these documentaries because I don't think he's actually captured in any I of I think these. you see him exactly like once you know? in the disc two when he was talking about building the NX-01 very qu- yeah. very quickly on his, in his living room. I think it's like the first set. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. And, but it's not, not nearly enough for, for what he's contributed to the show. So, I mean, all of this, I could go on and on and on and on and on and I stare at my podcast counter and it's getting a little too long, but I mean, it's, it's really worth your while and it really is just a fantastic series, fantastic product in the Blu-rays, and except for one, no, there's one thing I really did dislike about all of them, and those were the director's chairs. It was the worst way to interview anybody ever. Those those high back or those high you know short back chairs, which made everyone feel automatically at the highest level of discomfort possible. So, but I don't want to end on a on a negative note. So, any, anything else positive to say before I wrap this up? Uh, we are getting a five percent cut of all the Blu-ray sales, which is why we've been hawking these Blu-rays so much. I'm I just was 7%. I'm just kidding. I thought it was seven percent. It's the seven percent solution. So four point. All right, guys. <laughs> So, guys, it's been you know it's it's been my privilege, guys, to have you on the shows and to uh, talk these Blu-rays. Thank you, Larry, so much for being on here, and especially for this one because you were so heavily featured in the season four set. And uh, but it's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this past week. So here's a few other topics that we have been talking about elsewhere on the network. 
Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And the Slaver Weapon's the only episode of the original with uh, no Kirk in it. No, not there no yet. Spoilers. There? Wait, there's no Kirk in that one? I, I, no. I didn't even know. I'm going to have to it, check that it out. It completely takes place starting off with the shuttlecraft and only the people that are in the shuttle. The Orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently, the Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward, because they don't always show up for meetings, so... Right. Yeah. Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? <laughs> to the journey! It's it's so average American. It's like Joe Smith. And no offense to Joe Smith, it's just, I could have tried a little harder. I mean, come on. Might as well call her Jane Doe. So far, not off to a good start. So far, I'm judging you, Shark. Give me a moment. Give me a moment. Commentary, Trek stars. One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he, he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So he he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. Women at warp. There's always a touchstone, and this was as close to a touchstone as they ever got with Pulaski. Plus she banged Riker's dad. (laughs) Oh, Andy. I'm sorry, I just think it's so funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So if you like what you heard tonight, and if you like what you hear on Trek FM, there's a way that you can help us out. We are an independently funded network, so we have a program that you may have heard of or you may have heard me speak of on other shows called Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and that's a way that you can help us fund the show. We have expenses that are, are included with the show in terms of like keeping our servers uh, running and keeping all of the network ins and outs at full form, keeping the warp plasma injectors clean and making sure that the engines are running smoothly so we can hit that 5.1 eventually. And But the one thing that is really amazing, and it's just taken off so well, is the Patreon Roundtable program. And, and Will, you've done a great job with this. You're getting so many people, so many new patrons coming to the website and, and supporting us and donating on a monthly basis. And I think it's largely due because they finally have a chance to, to meet all of us, the hosts of Trek FM, to talk about what they like about Star Trek. And I think the roundtable is a huge success. So if you could just let the uh, fans and the listeners know a little bit about what's going on with the roundtable. Yeah, so it's just a monthly uh get together with uh, Trek FM hosts and patrons who donate at the $25 level or above just to get together in a very informal and casual way just to talk about all things Trek. So it's in-universe Trek, out-of-universe Trek. We've talked about what brought us into Star Trek, what were our favorite moments in Star Trek, how it affected our social lives. So we're doing this. um, We just finished our third uh, roundtable in August. We're going to have one this month. And Hopefully, we'll get more and more people involved, and I think one day, hopefully, we'll have Larry on the roundtable, too. I think it'd be really, uh, if you're interested, Larry, I think it's really a great uh, way for the, the fans and listeners to, to be involved and for the hosts to talk to each other. Sometimes we do our own shows. We don't get a chance to talk to each other, so it's really great just uh, cross-pollination of fun and ideas and just kind of overall geeking out, so I'm really pleased with how it's turned out. And it's, I think it's a great program. You're right. It's, it's you're growing leaps and bounds, and... I mean, you have the Brady Bunch, pretty much the, the the group of people that you take snapshots of. I think you were up to nine last time. Up to nine. nine so I think I think with yeah. my Zoom account, I can do up to 25. So I don't know if it's going to be that crazy, but um, we'll see if we can push the envelope of how many people can be involved. 
And if we can get that many more patrons, that's going to be great. And for all you patrons, you know, you have all of these different types of exclusive perks. You have access to content that Will can uh, provide for you, exclusive content you can talk to all the showrunners about. You have producer credits, which is kind of like the way that I came in uh, on board as an associate producer for several shows. And you have seats on the content development team and a lot more. So thank you for supporting us, for those, those of you who are Patreons. And for those of you who are looking at supporting us, there are different ways for you to do that and at different flexibility and comfort levels as well. And I always have to say thank you to our associate producers for Warp Fide, Floyd Dorsey and Mike Morrison. Uh, thanks always for your support on Patreon and for always talking up Warp 5 and Trek FM on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook page, uh, which we are all posting on all the time because that is where you get the straight skinny and a lot of great conversation and a lot of Trek knowledge that is imparted on from all your hosts and from Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek, who uh, frequents the boards <laughs> from time to time. Now, if you'd like to get in contact with us and see how you can get involved, or if you'd just like to leave us a message or a subspace signal as you prefer, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look on the sidebar on the show page. You can always go on speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message or a subspace big signal as you prefer. You can always contact us through Twitter at trekfm. Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and as I mentioned before, the Babel Conference, just type in B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to our website and click Trek FM and the discussion on the menu bar. As I said before, we had some really uh, fantastic um, conversation here. Thanks to Jeff, thanks to Will, and thanks to Larry. So Larry, I know you have a lot of followers, and and, uh, I know that you have a lot of people who are interested in what you're going to have to say here on the podcast, but please let all of your listeners know how they can get in touch with you here uh, on Subspace. Well, uh, Twitter Subspace is still at Larry Nimichek. That's pretty simple. Uh, Facebook is Larry Nimichek's Trekland. Uh, website is LarryNimichek.com. And that's the gateway to everything from the Con of Wrath, my documentary that we're wrapping up, to uh, the Trekland trunk sales, uh, information about our next year's huge uh, 50th anniversary uh, Geek Nation Tours L.A to Vegas and San Fran uh, Star Trek film site tours, we've got 20 people as of today signed up and we max out at 35, which is huge. We're way ahead of where we've been with that forever, but that's not till next summer. But like everything else about next year for the 50th, people are jumping in early. And um, Enterprise in Space is my nonprofit that I, if you enjoy uh, crossing over with uh, supporting education efforts to get kids and grad students and the public excited about space again, that's enterpriseinspace.org that I'm a part of. And then very close to home here, um, end of September, I'll be at Salt Lake Comic Con. Uh, looking forward to that. That's going to be – that's like the third largest con in the country now. And yeah. um, very, very, very excited on top of everything else that uh, – oh, and, and on speaker if you enjoy these deep dives. I haven't done an Enterprise one yet. I'm going to have to figure that out, what next year's theme is going to be for my Trekland on speaker archival remastered uh, – Interviews from the 90s and the aughts, uh, deep dive chunks of talking with some of these creators. I need to do an Enterprise one, though, sometime. But most of all, my Portal 47 that I'm just launching, we just had, by the time this airs, we just will have had the first startup call. So for right now, just go to the Facebook page, Portal 47. It may not be for everybody, but it's a boutique deep dive fan experience that I've been trying to put together for years. It's really unique and different, and uh, we'll... Just check it out. That's what I'll say. <laughs> I'll be mysterious about it, so you'll be entranced. But I'm really, really, really excited that we're we're getting it off the ground. Um, yeah, finally a way to 21st century way to 
have a mini con all year long with people, hopefully, in a lot of different ways. So that's exciting. So, but thanks for having me on again and uh, got me back in touch with a very, a very sweet, bittersweet time and, um, and excellent, excellent uh, DVDs. I know they didn't have a big budget on these, but they're just, they're just amazing. No, and thanks for coming on, and you're welcome here anytime. You're welcome in the conference room or if we have to throw you in the decon chamber for a minute or two, but <laughs> thanks for coming on. You're Only always if I on get to pick the flavor of the gel. E, decon gel E. Uh-huh. I think we went all the way down there. So, <laughs> um, Okay, Jeff, and uh, for you, uh, let us know um, how the listeners can get in touch with you, you know, across subspace. Well, um, I'm frequently on the Babel Conference and the Axonar fan group uh, posting there pretty regularly. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Harlander, uh, and I also have my comic books, uh, that we've, uh, discussed a few times, uh, just actually just released a color edition of the first issue. Um, I went back and colored it. Of the Protectorate? Uh, yes. And, uh, it's, uh, uh, that's available, uh, you know, it's on, uh, bandwidthcomics.com. It's also on facebook.com slash bandwidthcomics. And then uh, I've got the Trekopedia, uh, trekopedia.com, and I've been working on that whenever I can find time to spare on that. But uh, um, I was actually just uh, recently uh, went on Standard Orbit and talked about that a bit, too. All right, Will, you're up, my man, so do the thing. Yeah, so you can always reach me in the Babel Conference, like with all of you guys. Um, it's our dedicated Facebook listeners group. I'm always in there almost every day. Um, you can always tweet me at at will underscore win, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And, you know, I'm also the content manager for the network. So if you have any ideas on what we should be talking about um, on this show or any other show and kind of direction of, of Trek FM and kind of fandom in general, please hit me up at any time. Always love to, to listen from you fans. And like I said, I'm also the host of the Patrons Roundtable. So if you guys want to get involved there, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash trekfm. And just like the guys said, I'm on the Babel Conference pretty much posting daily because I love talking and tweeting and texting with all of you fine folk and our and our fantastic listeners there. You can also find me on Twitter, Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. Uh, you can always find me on the Axonar fan group page because I'm a huge supporter of that project and I pretty much post there daily as well. And I'm a huge, you know, I'm, I love saying this because I always mean it. And I'm a huge sponsor of the show through the Patreon program. And I am an executive producer uh, for Trek FM. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. Warp 5.